Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, my name is Hera Arsen. We are coming to you live from Ogletree Deacons National Seminar Workplace Strategies here in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona. I am here today with Betsy Johnson, who is a shareholder in our Los Angeles office, and she will be talking to us today about personnel audits. Thank you, Betsy, for joining us today. So let me ask you, let me start out. A lot of our sessions over the last few days have been about California laws, the many various California laws with all their wonderful obligations for California employers. We've seen several sessions on PAGA and class actions. California employers have discrimination, harassment obligations, and also we have a number of leave of absence laws that California employers must comply with. So how can California employers stay in compliance with these various laws? Well, first, Harris, I want to thank you for inviting me to um, participate in this podcast today. Uh, and this is a this is a topic that when I do um, uh, programs on California law, somebody always asks me, "Well, how do you keep up with this stuff? And how do you um, how do you uh, make sure that that um, the clients are in compliance?" And one of my first answers is, "You got to uh, routinely conduct." personnel and payroll audits to make sure that your processes and your and your policies and your forms uh, are up to date with respect to uh, California law. So Betsy, personnel audits, it's kind of a daunting task. You've got a lot that you could cover in a personnel audit. So tell me a little bit about how do you plan it? How do you execute on these? What goes into your, your preparation? First of all, I want to say something up front because it is a daunting task. If you tried to bite all, you know, eat the whole pie in one in one sitting, you'd you'd you you'd be sick. Um, but here you can take it in slices. So what I always tell clients is, pick the things that are keeping you up at night or where you are concerned that there may be problems. So, for example. If you're concerned that your pay stubs, your itemized wage statements are not in compliance, you do a spot audit of the, of the wage statements. If you think that your leave of absence policies, including not just FM, uh, CFRA, California Family Rights Act, pregnancy, disability, and all the other things we have like school activities and stuff like that, if you're concerned about those uh, policies. You can do a spot audit of that area. How are you handling leaves of absence? And look at the policies and look at the forms. So you don't have to bite it off all in one chunk. And also, once you decide what you want to do, you can break it down into phases, so to speak. Uh, and and the first phase is, is uh, and all I can say is planning, planning, planning. You have to sit down and decide 
what the scope of the audit's going to be. What issues are you going to look at? What issue, and you can prioritize it. You may say, I'm gonna do this one, in fa these issues in phase one, I'm gonna do these issues in phase two. So that, that's an interesting perspective, Betsy, because you really can customize it and take your time and do it. It could be a long process. It could be a process specific to your industry or specific to your workplace in terms of your priorities, which ones you wanna hit first. Absolutely, and, and that makes it a little more doable. So, um, so what, you're going to decide what the scope of your audit is, Then the next thing you're going to do is decide what kind of data you need and, and gather it, whether it's policies, procedures, whether it's HRIS data or payroll data, whatever it is you, you need, you gather the data. And then the next part of it is you're going to analyze the data. You know, what, what does the data show you? Do I need to interview? Um, uh, maybe I need to interview some managers about uh, how it works on the floor, mm -hmm. uh, that kind of thing. So you want to, you know, get you figure out how you're going to get the data, how you're going to analyze it, how you're going to use it, and how you are going to report uh, uh, your findings. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, in a little bit. But then you have to also decide uh, if it's something that you need to communicate to. Um, to the senior management or you need to communicate out to the employees. So how do you communicate the results of the audit? Then you've got to um, develop your plan, you know, your action plan. What are you going to do to accomplish what it is that you need to fix or modify um, with, uh, with respect to whatever topics of the audit. You know, and lastly, this is not a one and done. You don't, you know, you don't say, okay, my pay stubs are fine or my leave of absence rules, uh, policies are fine and put it away and don't ever look at it again. This is an evolving process because California law changes all the time. So it sounds like you might have a number of different participants in your personnel audit process and it might vary depending on what your scope is, right? So is there, is there something about how you build a team that is going to go about doing this? Yes, and that's part of the planning process. Before you decide, you know, uh, to, before you pick up any data or gra gather any information, you have to decide who's going to be involved and at what level. Um, keep in mind that if it's just at the um, at HR and payroll level, none of that activity is going to be covered by any kind of attorney-client privilege. So if you find that we, you know, that, that there are serious compliance issues, um, that, that information would be discoverable if um, you're audited by the California Labor Commissioner or if there's litigation. So you have to decide if you want to keep it in a form that you don't mind disclosing or if you want to keep it as a privilege, in which case you can get your in-house counsel involved or you can get outside counsel involved. And that at least you start off with the privilege. And if we have good results, you can always waive that, uh, the privilege to, to disseminate them. Um, you have to have buy-in with your team. They all have to be on the same page. They all have to know what the what the what the what the process is going to look like and what's going to be done at the end. Um, and uh, and it has to also come from the top. The top uh, management has to have buy-in to this, uh, so that. Um, that you know that you are you have the discretion as an HR person to get this ball rolling. So so senior management has to be part of this discussion. So you've decided you're going to do a personnel audit. You've narrowed your scope down. You've got your team together. You've got buy-in. 
what are going to be some of the next steps? Can you talk a little bit about, take for example, some, some of the areas you might be auditing? What are you going to, what are you going to be looking at? Well, um, if we're talking about wage and hour audits, which I have to say are probably the most common audits that we do because the data is usually, it's either there or it's not. And if it's not there, then we have a bigger problem. Yeah. <laughs> a pretty big problem, right? But, but if it is there, it's all, you know, it's all data that can be used and searched and, and, um, and um, manipulated. So I usually start with the, you know, if you're starting with payroll, you're going to look at, you know, are we keeping accurate time records for our employees? Uh, are we, um, uh, if we're using a rounding system in our timekeeping system, are we doing the rounding correctly under California law? Uh, and keep in mind, a lot of the California wage and hour issues, you may think, oh, well, yeah, that's how we do it under the FLSA. But we have all kinds of nuances uh, in our rules that make it, you know, you can't just say, oh, if I can, if I'm okay under the FLSA, I'm going to be under a California law, okay, under California law. And Reporting time pay is one of those things. Uh, it is a unique creature to California, and you know that is where you, um, if an employee comes to work and they're provided with less than their full shift, we have to either pay them half their shift, a maximum of four hours, and a minimum of two hours. So that is a creature that is unique to California law. And, and Betsy, I wonder, is that something that came into play during the pandemic more? Because if somebody is sent home, if there is some kind of a, a spread in a certain area of the workplace and you have to send people home, you're probably under obligation at that point, correct? Oh, that's a, that's a great, great uh, question, Hera, because, uh, you know, we, we switched over to COVID pro protocols so quickly that a lot of our pay practices and policies and processes, you know, uh, uh, couldn't, keep, couldn't catch up. Uh, and the, so the reporting time pay was an issue because if an employee, and a lot of industries already have this issue, like because they do bag checks at the beginning or the end, right. of a, uh, end of a day. But office people, you know, you just walk in the office, you sit down at your desk mm -hmm. um, and you are, you know, then you boot up, you're on the clock. But if employees are having to wait outside the office to get their temperatures taken um, or uh, fill out questionnaires or even in the, on the app at home, uh, that, that could be compensable interesting, time. Interesting. And certainly if you send somebody home because they have a fever or they didn't pass the protocol, then you know, do we pay them reporting time pay? That has not been a question that has been definitively answered yet. But you know, there's so much pandemic litigation of going course. on eventually and, it's going to happen. And new pandemic laws, right. correct? So, yes. you know, your sick leave requirements might be different than they were before the pandemic. Exactly, exactly. Um, some other uh, topics in the wage and hour um, uh, area, of course, is, you know, California has different overtime rules. We have daily overtime, not just the 40 hours in a week. So you want to make sure you're paying your California overtime properly. And uh, within the overtime, um, we've seen a lot of issues coming up now with um, uh, calculating the regular rate for overtime for your non-exempt employees. Mm -hmm. uh, California is somewhat similar to federal law in re with respect to calculating the regular rate, but we have some special rules for employees who are paid two different rates. We have some special rules um, that uh, how you add incentive and commissions into the regular rate. And most recently, our wonderful California Supreme Court decided that we need to recalculate our meal and rest pre, uh, break premiums 
uh, and sick pay to make sure that they account for, uh, that they are paid in the same way, calculated using the same regular rate that you do for overtime. Right, so meal and rest breaks, we've seen quite a bit of litigation about that in California. Is there anything in particular California employers should think about in terms of when you're doing an audit of your Mm -hmm. breaks? Well, the first thing you have to do is check your policy, because if your policy, and this is, you know, another area, if you have multi-state and you want to just have one handbook, and you mention if you put in the handbook and meal and rest breaks will be given in accordance with state law, that is not sufficient for California. So for your California employees, you have to have a totally compliant meal and rest break policy. And yeah, it's going to be one of the longer policies, you know, next to your FMLA uh, leave policy. It's going to be one of the longer policies in your handbook because you have to lay out exactly when the employees are entitled to the meal periods and rest breaks. And then, of course, you have to capture it properly. Um, A lot of employers make the mistake of using a rounding on the meal periods. You can't round on meal periods. Uh, The meal periods have to be within the first five hours of the employee's shift. So you got to look at the time records to make sure when the meal period was taken. Uh, It has to be a full 30 minutes. So you got to check and make sure, you know. And then you have to look and decide what you're going to do. If you see where you have a lot of late meal periods or people punching in early, or missed meal periods. Um, If you're paying the premiums, that's great, but if you haven't been paying, automatically paying the premiums, and I don't always recommend that, but but if you're looking at that, then you gotta decide, well, what am I gonna do with the people who skip their meal period? So you have to actually, this is one of those areas where you're gonna wind up talking to some of the supervisors to find out how they manage meal and rest breaks on the floor, so to speak. So that's something that um, I, we still get lots of class and PAGA claims for meals and rest breaks. You would think we've, we've done that, you know, <laughs> we've put that issue to rest in California, but we have not. So I think it's interesting for, for employers who are maybe new to California or California law, say a little bit, Betsy, about why these wage and hour issues with California's, you know, arguably idiosyncratic laws on meal and rest breaks, overtime, why is it so important in terms of the consequences of getting these wrong? So if somebody's not familiar with that aspect of it. Yeah, and perhaps when I, do, when I talk about California, these audits, I should start with what are the consequences of not doing it right. right. Because, uh, and that's a, you know, a, great, uh, a great topic to bring up. So, you know, we have in California for every, for every law, there's going to be a consequence for violating it. And in California, as you can well expect, as in some other states too, it's a monetary penalty. And uh, many of our um, uh, penalties uh, related to the various statutes are um, on a per person, per pay period basis. So if somebody's been working there, and usually our statute of limitations for the wage and hour stuff is three years, it can be extended to four in litigation, but um, but you're going to um, you know you're going to have to um, the penalties going back you know three years in some cases you know at hundred bucks a pop you know per pay period per employee if you have five hundred employees 
I, I, they don't teach you math in law school, but I already know there's going to be a lot of zeros <laughs> I there. I think it's a lot. I think that's the answer is it's a lot. It's so a lot. That's and probably why the first topic you talked about today in terms of personnel audits is the wage and hour topics because yes. the, the consequences could be dire. But let's talk about some other topics. What else should, you know, could a, could a California employer be thinking of when they are going to conduct one? Um, we've had a lot, because of the pandemic and everybody, a lot of people working from home, we've had a lot of issues come up with uh, 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 expense reimbursement for, um, for California employees. Not surprisingly, California has some different rules than, uh, than anywhere else, anywhere else. Uh, except for a few states have, re require, uh, s have special rules for expense reimbursement. I think there's 10 states, mm -hmm. including California. But the um, expense reimbursements in California are, um, you know, the law says, or Labor Code 2802 says, that we have to reimburse employees for necessary and reasonable expenses incurred on the employer's behalf. So when we sent people home to work at home, um, some people needed to upgrade their internet because they do a lot of spreadsheet work and now they're doing that um, at home. Uh, they might need a stipend for that. And certainly if they're using their own internet and, and you don't already give a stipend, a lot of companies do stipends for phones and sure. internet already. But if you're not doing that already, those expenses uh, are reimbursable to the employees. We have to give them an amount that would reasonab is reasonably designed to take into account what the business use of their equipment and uh, and, and that sort of Interesting, thing. Interesting, but if you have an employee who already had the fastest speeds because they have teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those folks who are not on our payroll. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Even if somebody has the fastest internet in the world, if they were not using the internet for business before they went remote, and remember, we're going to have remote for a very long time. If they weren't using their internet for work at home, then now we have to start giving them a stipend for Interesting. that. Interesting. Okay. And same thing with the phone. Okay. You know, we'd mm -hmm. have to give them a stipend for that. And that's becoming uh, a big issue in the, in the litigation we've got going on, the class actions and sure. PAGA litigation. Um, some other areas that you got to be really careful of are commissions and bonuses. California has a different take on those, um, you know, and and um, uh, and commission plans have to be in writing. They have to be signed by the employees. So you want to look through the personnel files and make sure you've got commission agreements or bonus agreements with the employees in the files. And that's one actually one audit one topic alone that you could do is audit your personnel files. Take a random sampling of personnel files and make sure that all the proper forms are in there and they're completed properly. You know, a lot of uh, issues come up when you do that. You find out that the I-9 wasn't completed properly. Mm -hmm. So what are we going to do about that? Um, so these are all um, uh, uh, topics that, that you should consider uh, looking at from an audit perspective. Um, and again, it's really, as Hera mentioned before, you can customize this any way you want. Mm -hmm. So I always ask my clients before we get into the audit, what's keeping you up at night? What do you wake up in the, in the middle of the night and say, oh my God, I don't think we're doing this right. Mm -hmm. um, that's where you start on the audit. That sounds great. So you've done your audit, you've collected all your data, you've gathered the information, you've talked to HR, you've got, you're, you're sitting on, with a pile of papers around you. 
what are you going to do next? What do you do with all of this information? Well, going back to my earlier slide about get, getting senior management's buy-in into this, if you don't think management is going to be ready to make changes that might need to be made, don't do an audit because, or do it under the attorney-client privilege. Because once you identify if there are violations or, 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 um, or problems uh, and, and nothing's going to be done about that, if it's a, a non-privileged audit, uh, that is, becomes discoverable in a lawsuit and right there we pretty much admit that we have going forward willful violations. And this is why the planning stage is so important. Absolutely. You've got to decide who is going to conduct the audit, correct? Yes. If you were going to have an attorney do it or not, because privilege is, is going to be an important factor once you've gathered your data. Right. And then you've got to figure out who you need to communicate this to and how you're going to communicate it. Do you want to put it in writing? Do you want to do it orally first? However you want to do it. And then you've got to come up for the, with the plan to fix it if, fix it if there are problems. Um, so let's talk about that in terms of communication. Are you, is it just communicating to management, communicating to employees, communicating that you've maybe found something that you're going to start correcting and how the implementation would work? Are you going to do that in stages? So how is, do you have to have a plan for that? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll take sort of a, a typical example that we've been dealing with since the California Supreme Court in the in the um, recently decided that meal and rest break premiums have to be uh, calculated using the same regular rate as overtime. Uh, and our, of course, our Supreme Court said, well, this is retroactive. You guys should have known about this for years. So it's retroactive back, you know, three years or four years. Um, so now what do you do? Um, a lot of employers are not including, you know, are not calculating the regular rate accurately. And so now we've done the audit and we've found out what the scope of the problem is. Um, how do we communicate the fix and what are we going to do? So this is the hardest part because when you're communicating with the employees, you want to do it in a way that you don't say, hey, we broke the law, but now we want to fix it. Sure. So you have to be, you know, and this is where, again, legal counsel can be very helpful uh, in, in crafting the kind of uh, communications that, um, that you, we give to the employees. Because, again, that's all going to come discoverable if there's ever any litigation. And do it in a way where we're not saying, yeah, we did it wrong, but, but we are correcting or we've done an audit. It's something like that. And we just don't say we did it all wrong. So, Betsy, do you think it's important to make sure you do the communication aspect of it rather than just go ahead and implementing a change and not telling people? I'm sure that some employers would be inclined to just think, let's just fix it. Let's just fix it. And, and in some cases, we can do that sure. because where it's sort of a behind the scenes thing, where especially like with wage statements, where we just need to change codes on the wage statement, you know. Or pay stubs or pay, in California. Yeah, pay which, stub, yeah. Sometimes we can just do it because it's just a code. It doesn't change the amount or the calculation on, on the um, on the uh, wage statement. Uh, and, you, and there are cases where you can just make that change and move forward. Um, but there are other things, for example, if all of a sudden employees are going to start seeing meal period penalties mm -hmm. on their wage statements, we're going to have to explain why. And then the, then the question's always going to be, well, what about the last three years? Uh, and then we have to be prepared to deal with that. And 
pay people for that. But again, it's, it's not always a great idea just to do it. Yeah, so in that regard, there, there are a lot of benefits to transparency. Yes. With uh, this process. Yes, yes, there are. Um, but it's the, what we call appropriate transparency. Of course. Actually, I'm doing a, a session to, uh, tomorrow here on effective, um, you know, how to have difficult conversations. And one of the things we're going to talk about is uh, appropriate transparency. Mm-hmm. As a manager, sometimes you have a conversation with an employee where you're giving them the news and you, the employees ask you questions and you say, well, I can't tell you. Because now you just, you're hiding something. So you want to be transparent in a way that gives them the information they need and doesn't set you up to say, well, I'm not at liberty to discuss that with you. Because that's just a bad, that just leaves every, a bad taste in everybody's mouth. Um, also, who's going to deliver the communications? That's very important. You want somebody that the employees know that they can relate to. This is not always the CEO or the president because then they become witnesses and we don't want them to be our star witness. So pick somebody who you know will be able to deliver the communications in an appropriate and, um, and user-friendly way. So what are some of the pitfalls that, that you could come across during this process and the communication part of it? And again, I've worked with clients on all, all aspects of this. I had one client that had, when we went back to do the retroactive meal period um, calculation, had hundreds and hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of dollars going back three years. They could not possibly pay that all at once. So, you know, we decided we're going to work backwards with our current employees and try to pay them, you know, bring them forward. And then if we need to deal with the former employees you know they're not here anymore mm-hmm. you know but the what you have to be careful of if you're going to limit what you're the time frame that you're making repayments uh, and that's what you're telling the employees you are always going to get that question well if this has always been the rule why didn't we do why hasn't this been done for the last three years and then you're in a position but at least you know what the numbers are at that mm-hmm. point because you did the whole audit you know what the numbers are on that point. And at that point, you're in a position to maybe take uh, further action or explain, you know, we come up with, what, we, we get very creative with our, with our communications. Sure. Give us some of your final thoughts on personnel audits. You've given us a lot of tips, but maybe what are the top things employers can keep in mind when they are setting about to do some of these? Well, I, th- I think, um, and, and again, we covered a lot of information uh, in, a, in a fairly short period of time. There are much more nuances to these audits. But I, I, I cannot stress enough is before you decide to do this is that you have to get senior management on board, which is going to, and to do that, you're going to have to start, and again, planning, planning, planning. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to be able to give them what your plan is, what you're going to be looking at, how are you going to go about doing it? You know, uh, do we want it privileged, non-privileged? How are we going to report it? And then most importantly, to say to them, hey, if we find problems with the wage statements or we find problems with the meal periods, are we going to be in a position to fix it? And if the answer is yes, then you've got your, you know, then you're, you're on your way. If the answer is no, then this probably isn't the right time for an audit. And I, and I would say that, again, it's, it's the planning process is, is vitally important. All the stuff in between is going to be behind the scenes gathering and analyzing and stuff. But at the end, it's how do you communicate out to the various stakeholders 
uh, and or employees that need to know about this stuff and how do you actually implement the fix if there is one. Well, thank you very much, Betsy, for being with us today and talking to us about personnel audits for California employers. Thank you for having me. And we hope you have enjoyed this podcast and tune in for the next one. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.